everyone and welcome to Read the Right Way with me, Miss Lucas. And me, Miss Skiro. So today we are really excited to bring you this podcast because we are looking at one of our favourite novels with a twist. You may have seen us going on and on about a certain Netflix adaptation of Rebecca. Um, We know that quite a few of you uh, have watched it already um some of you watched it straight away and have already spoken to us about it in school but we held off watching it until during half term um and it's safe to say we have quite a few opinions <laughs> definitely so we're going to be doing a review of the film and comparing it to the novel talking about what we like dislike um and ultimately just kind of giving our final thoughts yeah so as i've already said it is one of our favorite novels we have both read this separately independently before we even knew each other Mm. and when we met and obviously knew each other as english teachers we both realized our favorite novel was rebecca so we couldn't wait to do this podcast and we thought what better reason to do it when a new film version comes out because there was an older film version, wasn't yes. there? And that was done, I think, uh, was it the 40s, maybe It's black earlier. and white, isn't it? Yeah, it's mm. black and white. It's by Alfred Hitchcock. Looking at it now, it is dated. But actually, that was one of the film versions that really got Rebecca popularised in society. People mm. loved that film version because they loved Hitchcock. And they then, therefore, really adored this novel just as we do. Yes, so there has been quite a few um, different adaptations of Rebecca for TV as well. And it's a novel that is just eternally popular. And there's something about Rebecca that people always come back to. A couple of reviews um, such as one from the Times says that it it will live forever mm. because it touches a fearful nerve buried deep in the unconscious. So when we heard that there was going to be a Netflix adaptation, we thought incredible this is what we have been waiting for it's going to have a massive budget it's got super famous people in it how could they go wrong Mm. um as massive fans (laughs) of the book we are obviously going to have some opinions um but we're going to share with you today some bits that we really love about the novel and then look at how that was represented in the film So, Rebecca is a 1938 gothic novel by English author Daphne du Maurier, and it's all about a young, unnamed woman who very spontaneously marries a wealthy widower, but she soon discovers that both him and his household are very much haunted by the memory of his ex-wife. Now, that haunting element is a really, really important element of this novel, because it's what makes it a gothic novel, and that is why we love it so much absolutely Um, and that's one thing we're going to be having a look at today uh, with how the novel produces a gothic tense atmosphere and looking at whether the movie does that successfully or not definitely and we're also going to look at the fact that this unnamed protagonist this young woman is of a lover status and she has been suddenly transported into this lifestyle of someone of a very higher class especially compared to her and it's about her own identity and adapting to this new lifestyle which makes her and the reader very uncomfortable. So we're going to start having a look at our extracts now and we're going to start with possibly one of the most famous scenes in Rebecca which is the opening um, and it's the narrator, our unnamed female, um, dreaming that she visits Manderley again. Now Manderley is the uh, name of the house 
that her new husband owns and lives in. It's where the majority of the story takes place. Um, so she dreams that she goes back there. So we've got almost sort of like a circular narrative mm. here. We're going to be looking at the gothic elements and how this opening sets the time for the rest of the novel. Yeah. The drive was a ribbon now, a thread of its former self, with gravel surface gone and choked with grass and moss. The trees had thrown out low branches, making an impediment to progress. The gnarled roots looked like skeleton claws. Scattered here and again amongst this jungle growth, I would recognise shrubs that had been landmarks in our time. Things of culture and grace, hydrangeas whose blue heads had been famous. No hand had checked their progress, and they had gone native now, rearing to monster height without a bloom, black and ugly as the nameless parasites that grew beside them. So for a opening, this sets a very sinister tone. It's phenomenal. I love especially the parts where it, you know, alludes to death and a death that may have happened. And as you may already know, if you've watched the film, um, and I've highlighted that Maxim de Winter, our husband here in this scene, he has an ex-wife, so you're already getting implications of what may have happened to her. She may have died. And, you know, with the skeleton claws, you've got the parasites, you've mm. got the uh, gnarled roots as well, and choking and torture. Again, you've got such intensity around death. It's almost such a horrific place to be and this is where this this new woman is going to spend most of her time with her new husband and it's hardly appealing it also sounds quite mournful as well with the um the description of the black plants you know like black flowers that often be yeah. associated with mourning and death and funerals and Manderley is supposed to be well later on it's described as a jewel yeah um it sits amongst this nature but the nature in this dream has gone wild it presents it like this kind of sinister creeping yeah. evil that's taking over the house um and this small extract is from pages yeah. of description of nature it goes across chapters at the beginning doesn't it mm. and you can't get away from it so you are chucked into this mass of horror which really sets the tone for the rest of the novel mm. and we felt that with the film especially it did not give us that in the slightest we were really disappointed right from the opening scene where you see somebody approaching a house at night it looked kind of smoky and misty yeah but I couldn't help but feel that it was quite a poor attempt yep. at recreating <clears throat> this scene where was the nature it didn't no, even look like Mandalay and it was over in five seconds they mm. said the first line of the book and that was it and we were just sat there with our popcorn and our drinks just waiting for this elongated scene of horror mm. and tension and it was not there and we just kind of went oh and that was it yeah it was really disappointing mm. and really on a cinema photography level it, it looked visually beautiful but mm. absolutely nothing like how it's read in the novel so it seemed mm. to be that the, the director hadn't accurately read the description of the novel because it just wasn't authentic 
And it didn't really give the scene any relevance to us. This dream is significant because yeah. she's left Manderley after the events that unfold within the novel. Yeah. And there's a reason why she dreams about it in a nightmarish way. And with all the death um, references as well, there's exactly. a purpose for that. And it just wasn't there. That sense of foreboding, that evil feeling. Yeah. In the film, you didn't get that. It could have been any dream, any house. Didn't really hint at no. you as to why they left. And then so suddenly, after five seconds of that introduction of this twisted dis- distorted Mandalay, the scene then cuts straight to Monte Carlo which mm. is beautiful and sunny and hot and gorgeous mm. and it just felt completely wrong it should have it should have led us in more to that tone and then we would have felt like the rest of the mm. film followed suit but it didn't at all now having said that the scenes of Monte Carlo and the holiday were beautiful they were bright they were colorful and they would have served as fantastic uh, contrast yeah. to the really kind of evil, spooky opening. Um, we're supposed to see an idyllic picture of what mm. their relationship could be like yeah. away from the influences of but characters because like you Mrs. didn't Danvers. have that extended opening, it wasn't convincing as to why um, Mandalay was such a change for our main character. I do think, though, people who haven't read the book would have liked the opening. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, it's just it's just a real shame. It just didn't match up at all to our expectations. Yeah, from a mega fan's point of view. <laughs> and we are the biggest fans. So, thinking about the, the beginning of how the novel is set up and the beginning of the film, we're then going to think about the ending. And the next extract that I'm going to read is what was actually given as the ending of the film. Mm. However, this ending that the film used takes place at the start of the novel. Yes. And that really frustrated us, I think, because we were expecting this very meaningful order to be represented in the film. But it's almost as if Netflix tried to make it this kind of rounded, comfortable, resolved piece, which is mm. not meant to be. It was chronological, wasn't yeah. it? Whereas we know from what we've discussed and what you talk about in your English lessons, structure of a novel is just as important as the language. And Daphne du Maurier creates a wonderful structure with lots of foreshadowing at the beginning. And like we've said, that was lost. But for the film to be so chronological, there were many, many missed opportunities for memories, flashbacks, yeah. dream sequences. There could have been so much more, but it was just flat. Absolutely. So I'm going to read a very short part from what was the ending in the film, which is actually at the beginning of the novel. And we're just going to talk about why this wasn't reflected as well as it could have been. We can never go back again. That much is certain. The past is still too close to us. The things we have tried to forget and put behind us would stir again. And that sense of fear, of furtive unrest, struggling at length to blind, unreasoning panic, now mercifully stilled, thank God, might in some manner unforeseen become a living companion as it had been before. He is wonderfully patient and never complains, not even when he remembers. Which happens, I think, rather more often than he would have me know. I can tell by the way he will look lost and puzzled suddenly, all expression dying away from his dear face as though swept clean by an unseen hand, and in its place a mask will form, a sculptured thing, formal and cold, bright, beautiful, but still lifeless. He will fall to smoking a cigarette after cigarette, not bothering to extinguish them, and the glowing stubs will lie around on the ground like petals. 
He will talk quickly and eagerly about nothing at all, snatching at any subject as a panacea to pain. I believe there is a theory that men and women emerge finer and stronger after suffering, and that to advance in this or any world we must endure ordeal by fire. This we have done in full measure, ironic though it seems. We have both known fear and loneliness, and a very great distress. I suppose sooner or later in the life of everyone comes a moment of trial. We all of us have our particular devil who rides us and torments us, and we must give battle in the end. We have conquered ours, or so we believe. I really think that having this at the start lets us know that the events of the novel do not result in a happy ending, and that the people involved in whatever happens in the novel are tormented afterwards. And that's really important to a gothic novel. Definitely. And it's very clear here that they have experienced some sort of trauma. He, Maxim de Winter, our our husband here, has cigarette after cigarette. It's almost like he's self-medicating this kind of trauma that he's been through. And at the end of the film, it's almost as if they run off and live happily ever after, when that is so not the case. No, and that was a little bit frustrating. I think for a Netflix film, Mm -hmm. and yes, it's an adaptation, which means that they can tweak it slightly. And for the audience of Netflix, it's a much younger audience as well, uh, as opposed to the readers of this novel. It might be an older audience. Um, Having a happy ending makes it seem like they've managed to escape everything, but that's not the point. You're haunted by Rebecca in the house, and then you're haunted by the memories of her and the house even after you leave and that's what makes it sinister and really scary in parts definitely and the fact that the netflix film version had a resolution that was i suppose quite happy i guess Mm. that just suggests that really that film did not affect anyone and it did not affect the viewer and that's how it felt it felt we felt unaffected by that film but the novel my goodness we felt affected by it because you were just left with this grasping curiosity and horror at what you'd just read so if we move on to the second extract we're again having a look at that idea of uh gothic themes and horror um so we've had a look at the dreaming sequence of her Um, walking up the long, long path to Manderley. We've looked at the effect the events at Manderley have on them. Um, So we wanted to read an extract from her first ever time approaching Manderley. And again, this is quite a significant moment because it's supposed to build tension. This drive is so long and it appeared quite long in the Mm -hmm. um, movie. And I think as we read it for the second time now we didn't realize how many pages yeah. this drive is described for it really is very long and it's supposed to build tension yeah. and have us wondering when are we going to get there when are we going to get there and our narrator is feeling that tension too she grips the seat of the car yeah. um she's kind of eager to see it but nervous to arrive at the same time i just don't think in the film there couldn't be any less tension on that drive and that's what really no. That's what really annoyed me. It was like a, a jolly drive along, wasn't yeah. it? Like she was just excited to get there and to see the new house yeah. and her new home with a brand new husband. Yeah. But again, if we think about watching it, not having read the novel, um, that serves as a good contrast for what she sees when she arrives. Mm. But we really miss that sense of foreshadowing and foreboding. This drive twisted and turned as a serpent scarce wider in places than a path, and above our heads was a great colonnade 
of trees whose branches nodded and intermingled with one another, making an archway for us like the roof of a church. Even the midday sun would not penetrate the interlacing of those green leaves. They were too thickly entwined, one with another, and only little flickering patches of warm light would come in intermittent waves to dapple the drive with gold. It was very silent, very still. On the high road, there had been a gay west wind blowing in my face, making the grass on the hedges dance in unison. But here, there was no wind. Even the engine of the car had taken a new note, throbbing low, quieter than before, as the drive descended into the valley, so the trees came in upon us, great beeches with lovely smooth white stems, lifting their myriad branches to one another, and other trees, trees I could not name, coming close, so close that I could touch them with my hands. On we went, over a little bridge that spanned a narrow stream, and still this drive, that was no drive, twisted and turned like an enchanted ribbon through the dark and silent woods, penetrating even deeper to the very heart, surely, of the forest itself. And still there was no clearing, no space to hold a house. The length of it began to nag at my nerves. It must be this turn, I thought, or round that further bend. But as I leant forward in my seat, I was forever disappointed. There was no house, no field, no broad and friendly garden, nothing but the silence and deep woods. The lodge gates were a memory and the high road something belonged to another time, another world. Suddenly I saw a clearing in the dark drive ahead and a patch of sky and in a moment the dark trees had thinned, the nameless shrubs had disappeared and on either side of us was a wall of colour, blood red, reaching far above our heads we were amongst the rhododendrons. There was something bewildering, even shocking, about the suddenness of their discovery. The woods had not prepared me for them. They startled me with their crimson faces, massed one upon the other in incredible profusion, showing no leaf, no twig, nothing but the slaughterous red, luscious and fantastic, unlike any rhododendron plant I had seen before. Wow, I love that description. I think that's phenomenal. That imagery is just stunning. And I can just picture every inch of that when Miss Skiro reads it. Yet again, that wasn't transpired into the film. Not at all. And what I really love about this especially is the fact that it says how the woods and the trees were penetrating deeper into the heart and all the trees were almost touching our main character. And that's like Rebecca's presence, the ex-wife's mm. presence, that's always reaching in, always affecting her always there so even the nature represents the kind of ghost that this Rebecca has and she's not even at the house yet words like entwined and intermingled it just shows how um, Rebecca's ghost is entwined so tightly mm -hmm. around everybody's lives and I should say when I say ghost I don't mean a physical ghost drifting around the no. corridors of Mandalay. It's her, her memory, presence. her presence. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And also, I really find the rhododendrons at the end brilliant in terms of their description and how it says 
that they are the colour of blood red. And oh, we've got something ominous going on there mm, already. Slaughterous red. Slaughterous red. So almost, um, well, slaughter, like that's murder, isn't yeah. it? So again, what's happened here? But I love that. Mm. I think that's so fantastically and cleverly worded. We should probably mention rhododendrons are a flowering shrub. Um, and they are a symbol all the way through yeah. um, the novel. So we'll see them inside Manderley as well. And they're supposed to be towering and intimidating and mm. symbolising Rebecca yeah, herself. Rebecca. Yeah. This kind of like luscious, powerful, vibrant, bright human being who yeah. everybody loved and adored. And our plain narrator just cannot compete. No. And... We also see this narrator becoming obsessed, fixated, paranoid about Rebecca's presence. And how can you how can you not be if you're surrounded by something that reminds everyone and you of her constantly? Mm, mm. Really clever. Um, but yeah, that is just something else that just was not conveyed in the film at all. If I remember correctly, I think either side of the driveway, it was just perfectly manicured lawns. Stunning, yeah. It was very beautiful, very ornate, very um, elegant, Mm. and that is not the case at all in this. It was far too calm. Yeah, and also, even though the weather's not necessarily mentioned in that extract you just read, you are visualizing the weather to match that negative tone. But Mm. all the way on this happy, jolly drive in the film, it's beautiful. It's sunny. Birds are tweeting, and it's like, no, it's so wrong. It's not. It's not supposed to be like that. Like the sunlight kind of beaming down onto Lily James. James. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just not. And we have an issue with Lily James actually as well, and I think we should probably talk about that now. So we don't have an issue with her as a person, I'm sure she's delightful, but (laughs) in terms of choosing her as a casting Mm. option for the new Mrs. De Winter, so the unnamed wife, she did not match how the new wife should have been in the novel. No, she's supposed to be incredibly plain, and instead of being this very pretty kind of bright blonde she looked incredibly modern as well she just she wasn't mousy and timid enough no and she's supposed to look like a you know the complete opposite of Rebecca or what we'd imagine Maxim de Winter um, to have chosen for a wife and because she's so stunning and attractive and she really just stands out in terms of her beauty Mm. you were constantly looking at her rather than her emotions and everyone else's uh, reactions around her and that's just not what's meant to happen you're meant to feel that this girl can't can't deal with being in Mandalay she can't cope with being surrounded by Rebecca all the time and all these memories Mm. but Lily James looked absolutely fine (laughs) yes and and we're supposed to really feel the class difference too so she's supposed to look very plain and and boring but when she arrives at Mandalay she's supposed to kind of look more similar to like the maids yeah Um, and she's supposed to feel completely out of her depth and lost and as Mrs Danvers shows her around in the film she just kind of says how lovely Mandalay is but doesn't really seem intimidated by it which is what we needed yeah. for it to be similar to the book definitely um now speaking of mrs danvers mrs danvers is such a fascinating character in the novel i love her i mean i hate her but i love her she's because a fantastic she character. is 
thrilling to read about. Uh, Mrs Danvers is basically the housekeeper. She is there as kind of a personal maid, should we say. She was mm-hmm. definitely a personal maid to Rebecca, uh, the previous wife. But now she is meant to be taking upon this role with the new wife. And Mrs Danvers makes it very clear from the start that this new wife is never going to live up to Rebecca. Mm. So I'm just going to read a little extract about Mrs Danvers and this is when the new wife enters Rebecca's old bedroom and her drawing room and this is where Rebecca used to spend most of her time. Now this room shall we say it was left exactly how it was when Rebecca used to use it as if Rebecca is not even gone. It's like left as a shrine to her maintained by Mrs Danvers Um, so it's Mrs. Danvers is sort of the reason why Rebecca's um, spirit, I guess you could say, is kept alive throughout the novel. Um, And when the new Mrs. de Winter actually enters, it's almost like she's intruding in somewhere she shouldn't be. And so is the reader as well. Mm. Mrs. Danvers came back and stood beside me. She smiled and her manner, instead of being still and unbending as it usually was, became startlingly familiar warning even. Why did you tell me the shutter was open? She asked. I closed it before I left the room. You opened it yourself, didn't you now? You wanted to see the room. Why have you never asked me to show it to you before? I was ready to show it to you every day. You had to only ask me. I wanted to run away, but I couldn't move. I went on watching her eyes. Now you are here, let me show you everything, she said, her voice ingratiating and sweet as honey. Horrible. False. I know you want to see it all. You've wanted to for a long time and you were too shy to ask. It's a lovely room, isn't it? The loveliest room you've ever seen. She took hold of my arm and walked me towards the bed. I could not resist her. I was like a dumb thing. The touch of her hand made me shudder and her voice was low and intimate, a voice I hated and feared. That was her bed. It's a beautiful bed, isn't it? I keep the golden coverlet on it always. It was her favourite. Here is her nightdress inside the case. You've been touching it, haven't you? This was the nightdress she was wearing for the last time before she died. Would you like to touch it again? She took the nightdress from the case and held it before me. Feel it. Hold it, she said. How soft and light is it, isn't it? I haven't washed it since she wore it for the last time. I put it out like this in the dressing gown and slippers. Just as I put them out for her in the night, she never came back. The night she was drowned. She folded up the nightgown and put it in back in the case. I did everything for her, you know, she said, taking my arm again, leading me to the dressing gown and slippers. We tried maid after maid, but not one of them suited. You made me better than anyone, Danny, she used to say. I won't have anyone but you. Now, this was a scene in the film where they entered the beautiful bedroom, yeah. that vivid blue, such a cold contrast to everything else. It was clearly Rebecca. Yeah. And when the new Mrs. De Winter was looking at the things and touching the things and smelling the perfume and it felt quite intimate, we had high hopes. Yeah. And then when Mrs. Danvers came in and held up the nightdress on her and kind of said, oh, she was she was tall, wasn't she? Yeah. Um, it was not like not this. at all. And this goes on again for another two pages. Mrs. Danvers' obsession, her reminiscing of of um, Rebecca, and it's disturbing. It's intense. It's it's intimate, not in a nice way. Mm. It's it's awkward. It's uncomfortable. It's very disturbed, and that was not apparent. It's very strange that a woman 
like Mrs. Danvers, had been so cold to the narrator all the mm. way through to now suddenly, almost enthusiastically, in yeah. kind of a sick way, yeah. is really excited to show off everything about her, Rebecca. All those frantic questions. It's like an excitement, but also she wants to trouble yes. the new Mrs. De Winter. Well, she finds, Mrs. Danvers clearly finds Rebecca ever so thrilling and is obsessed with Rebecca, like the new Mrs. De Winter. So it's almost as if no one, whatever they try, whatever they do, just can't get away from Rebecca. Now, just springboarding off what you said about how Mrs. Danvers is obsessed, Mm -hmm. but also the narrator, the new Mrs. De Winter, is obsessed too. We don't actually see much of that obsession in the film at all. We see a few kind of clips of her pulling dark hair out of Mm -hmm. a hairbrush and realising, ah, Rebecca was dark-haired, smelling her perfume and stroking the embroidered R on a handkerchief. But other than that, there's no no real obsession. Not at all. And looking at letters where Rebecca has clearly written something in her own handwriting, we see that briefly in a close-up shot and that's Mm -hmm. it. That is absolutely it. We do not see anything internal in terms of her paranoia and her intensity of being fixated on this ex-wife. And that is what the whole novel is supposed to be about, this haunting and Rebecca being present and Mm. being there all the time and driving on a rater to the brink of insanity where she doesn't know what to believe anymore and she's kind of completely wrapped up in the mystery of who Rebecca was, why Maxim has chosen her for a new wife and what happened to Rebecca. And we did discuss um, after watching it the opportunities the director could have had or made for these glimpses of Rebecca and we did say perhaps there needed to be an actual character of Rebecca in the movie that popped up quite a bit because in one particular scene it was a party scene a ball scene which I think was done shockingly as well but we'll talk about that later (laughs) um there was one little glimpse of someone with dark hair with a red dress and our our character our main character uh, says oh is that Rebecca and then goes chasing after her briefly but that needed to be happening more because actually that could have just been anyone but even that red dress you know a woman running through the house at night in a red satin slip nighty whatever it is yeah We've not seen the rhododendrons, so we don't understand the significance of the red. No. So to someone who's not read the novel, they would be thinking, oh, Rebecca, she looks almost like a vampire running through the house at night. And she does, in the novel, have those vampire-ish sort of um, descriptions, but it's just not made a big big enough thing. And because Rebecca is meant to be a seductress she's meant to seduce everyone and leave an impression on everyone manipulate everyone i suppose curse everyone yeah um and that's not clear at all no one seems as affected by rebecca as they are in the novel it's just sort of like i don't know let's torment the the new wife a little bit yeah and uh, see if she leaves but mrs danvers in the movie doesn't really even commit fully to no. making the new wife's life hell at Mandalay. You make it seem like we could act this better. We're talking as if we're <laughs> we're better actresses. <laughs> maybe but, we should just yeah, do the movie. Maybe we should. We'll do our own two-man version. I'll be, um, I'll be Rebecca. You can be Mrs. Danvers. Yeah, what, so you don't have a part? Yeah. No, I will. I'll have a bigger part based on our suggestions. Yeah. You know. oh, that would be shocking. But um, yeah, I just feel as if it wasn't very convincing that anyone had actually understood the role of Rebecca. Mm, no. We did kind of think... Has the director even read it? Yeah. Why would you make a novel that is loved by 
I mean, at least read so the book people. before you do a film on it. I know. <laughs> <laughs> We're sorry, director, if you're listening. So while we're on the subject of characters, we've talked about Lily James and how she's too pretty. We've talked about Rebecca and how she's not present enough. Now, the actor who has a ridiculous name, Army Hammer. Um, <laughs> Is that his real name? I you should don't have a look know. at that. Have a look it, why would you choose that, though? It just seems so silly. It does. But he is just, for us, I mean, he, he's not old enough, first of all, no. to play Maxim de Winter. There's supposed to be a significant age gap between the two. Because there's meant to be questioning as to why he's chosen the new wife. Exactly. And she's supposed to be very naive, very young, and he's supposed to be an older gentleman. Uh, not in a creepy way, in a, you know, acceptable way, but yeah. um, he's just, he's already had a wife. He's had a marriage. So he is meant to be older, and this new woman is meant to be naive and unknowing. In her first relationship, it almost yeah. seems. Um, so, Army hammer first of all too young uh but he doesn't seem to have that kind of like british stiff upper lip no. kind of approach to the whole no. situation and and british men of this time period would have been fairly reserved mm. they would have been relatively they would have been relatively stern and you just don't feel that from him at all because I think his facial acting has no depth or mm-hmm. realness to it. You don't feel a connection that he feels with anything, not with his new wife, not with Rebecca, not with Danvers. Mm, and that kind of coupled with his pastel yellow suits, it was a little bit too Great Gatsby for us yeah. and not enough this is a gothic thriller and mm. Maxim de Winter has secrets. No, and that's the thing as well. With his secrets, um, all the way through, the new wife says, you don't tell me anything, you don't tell me anything. Well, actually, no, he's not telling anyone anything because he's not speaking in the film. No, so... Exactly, and there are actually points where she'll ask him a question and he'll just get up and walk off. Yeah. And I kind of think there, the director might have had a sudden flashback of one of his memories or yeah. some kind of glimpse for us as the audience into what he's experienced yeah. and what he's not telling her. We need dramatic irony. Yeah. He's, it yeah. wasn't engaging in that Definitely, way. Definitely, because it's not clear that he's actually affected deeply by something or someone. And then there is the point where he does reveal what has actually happened. Mm. And again, that is worded in such a casual, nonchalant way that it is really not convincing that he's kept this deep inside of him and he's finally releasing. It's not a, it's not a release or a re- reveal, is it really? No, and they're sat in this... Uh, Little beach the shack. House? Yeah, yeah. The, the beach shack, and it's supposed to be Rebecca's private place. He's supposed to hate it and want to burn it to the ground, and yeah. he just is sat in there casually... He pours himself a whiskey. Yeah, and just kind of says, well, are we going to say... I mean, we have given a spoiler alert, yeah. so spoiler you know alert. What? Spoiler alert, he says, I shot Rebecca. Mm. And we're all meant to be, oh my goodness, but we did not feel that at all. No, and I don't know if that was because we already knew, but there had been no tension built no. to that. We didn't really see it coming, but nor did I care. No, because, because we weren't invested in these characters And as hadn't people. seen Rebecca. I didn't no. know what Rebecca was like. No, so why should we care whether he killed her or not? Exactly. And who were we rooting for? No. I don't feel like I was rooting for him, for Mrs. De Winter. No. I didn't feel like I hated Rebecca. Absolutely. I think my favourite character was Danvers, just because she had the most kind authenticity. of screen presence. Yeah. yeah. And she was the most authentic to the novel, but even then it wasn't as authentic. Mm. I think another character I did actually really like in it was 
um, Jack Favell. Yes. So we liked him, I think, in the film because he did look exactly how we pictured him yep. in the novel. Mm. However, there was not enough of him. So Jack Favell is basically Rebecca's cousin, first cousin, mm. and they actually have this very um very unorthodox relationship they have an affair basically um and they have grown up together as children so again it's all it's already suggesting that something about rebecca is amiss it's very taboo very it's not illegal uh but it is frowned upon yeah and jack favell pops up uh he's meant to be again like rebecca he's meant to be reminiscent of what rebecca is seducing charming um curious you want to know more about them but also maybe a bit sinister at the same time a bit crafty a bit Mm. sneaky there wasn't enough of him to demonstrate that at all and i feel like his character was portrayed accurately but it almost felt rushed he met rebecca and all of a sudden not rebecca sorry he met the new mrs de winter and all of a sudden he's managed to get her on a horse and they're on the horse together trotting along and then before we know it maxim de winter finds out and he's angry yeah and we don't really know why we don't know enough about this mysterious character no no it's it's frustrating to say the least Mm. and i think one other frustration that we both shared was a particular scene with the dress so when i say the dress we can both imagine a scene that we are because it was the epitome of a climax in the novel. What happens is, for this masquerade ball, this fancy dress ball, the new wife organises this ball as Rebecca would have done and really wants to impress everyone there with a fantastic costume. So Danvers suggests that she wears a dress which was um, in one of the paintings mm, in Mandalay. A yeah. portrait in Mandalay. And she says, you know what, this would be an amazing costume. The dress is amazing. It's this gorgeous white dress that just beams with radiance and it would look incredible so the new mrs de winter's very excited about this she gets the dress made she then decides that she wants to surprise everyone by walking down the stairs in this dress huge entrance doesn't she everyone's at the bottom of the stairs waiting for her yeah and it's a pivotal moment because we know we feel in our gut that something bad is going to happen you hold your breath at that moment don't you yeah we then find out afterwards that there's this huge sort of silence, this tumbleweed moment. <laughs> and then Mr. De Winter, Maxim, is very angry. And he's angry because his ex-wife, Rebecca, used to wear that exact costume every ball that she held. And the new wife didn't know that. But who'd planned it all? Danvers. Danvers. Yeah. So it is a very manipulative, very calculated scene. It mm. is portrayed fantastically in the novel. And it's the moment that... If we were questioning whether Mrs. Danvers was out to get her up until that moment, we now know that she hates this new wife. She only will have done that to make her look like an absolute fool in front of everybody there. Yeah. And she's also done it, I suppose, as a way to create a bigger split and divide between Maxim and the new wife. Mm. Doesn't work, but it does create that tension there and it makes the new wife feel even more uncomfortable, even more than she already was. Mm. And that was portrayed really quite poorly in the film because it's meant to be a pivotal scene in the novel and it was done very weakly. Because Mrs Danvers actually gets a maid to suggest it doesn't she and we don't find out until after but we see the new mrs de winter i wish she had a name it's so frustrating but the new mrs de winter planning and getting excited and we feel really
really great for her. We feel like this might be a turning point. And we don't really suspect anything until right at the end, the maid cries and says, oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Danvers told me to suggest it to you. Um, And and it was a bit of an anti-climax. It was very quick, though, wasn't it? It was just dropped in as if it was like, oh, we forgot the dress scene. We'll Mm. put it in. It didn't feel, it didn't feel um, believable, really. Mm. It wasn't believable at all. And interestingly, you said that you wish that the narrator had a name. Mm. I do, too. But I do love that she doesn't. And I don't think that was made as clear in the film again as it is in the novel that she doesn't have a name. And the sole reason is because who's the main focus? Rebecca. Exactly. And this new Mrs. De Winter is supposed to be insignificant, irrelevant. But then you look at Lily James and you think, surely a character that strikingly beautiful, that modern looking needs a name. But... I don't think anybody who hadn't read the book, if you hadn't read the book, you know, you might not have noticed that she wasn't no, actually given a name. Exactly. And, and that's really poor because that's one of the things that makes Daphne du Maurier so incredible as a writer. She'll use these very subtle but significant additions, well, not additions, lack no, of additions, exactly. uh, to her favour to make so many great suggestions but make what? the meaning is the meaningfulness of rebecca so much more powerful by not giving the new wife a name they could have had moments where she was about to introduce herself yes and oh i'm my names and then her husband cuts in and says this is mrs de winter and we could maybe see her being oppressed in that way there are definitely feminist themes in this book um, that were missed in the in the uh, movie because as a woman who marries a wealthy man, you're there to fulfil a role. And it was a role yeah. that Rebecca fully rebelled against and did yeah. not confirm, uh, conform to. No. Even, I think it was the day after the wedding, she says to Maxim de Winter, I'm, I'm not going to be you know, the wife you expect me to be. I'm going to yeah. be leading my own life. And that's exactly what she did. And everyone hated her, but this... This was not made apparent because they were so controlled by her. So even mm. in death, they couldn't say, we hated her, we hated her, we, we didn't like her at all. They still had to act as if she was there, controlling exactly. and ruling. And that's what makes it such a phenomenal novel. But unfortunately, the film did not not convey that. Now, it feels a little bit like we've just sat here for... 20 something minutes and um slated it slated it and which i guess we have we have a little bit <laughs> i'm trying to think of things i like things i like but um i think in terms of costume and if we're going to look at it aesthetically it was beautiful it was beautifully done mm. if you're going to look at it it's say a period drama but it wasn't that it was never meant to be that so it's not true to the novel and no. it's not as I think when you are a super fan of the novel you have high expectations yeah. and I don't know if anything will ever live up to our expectation. I mean, maybe not. Actually, maybe it would if they just followed the plot. Yeah. If you're going to make a movie out of a really famous book, follow the plot. I think that's all we were asking for. And I think all we were asking for as well was just characters that maybe even over-dramatised what mm. they're like in the novel because it was better to be too much than too little because mm. they're such convincing, striking characters in the novel. And if you don't get that in the film, then it hasn't been successful. No. So, basically, to summarise, read the book. <laughs> Yeah, read, <laughs> read the, book. the book. It's so good. It's amazing. Um, hopefully, you enjoyed today's podcast, even though it was slightly a bit more negative. 
But what we are saying is that it is a true testament that usually the novel is better than the film. Yeah, and if you liked the film, don't feel bad about it. I mean, read the novel so you can compare. (laughs) We won't judge you for liking the film. And Um, actually, that's a really good critical skill to have to be able to read the novel and then compare with the film. But we are looking in the future to maybe do a few more like this because there are some films of novels that I have thoroughly Mm. enjoyed. So Mm. we'll have to definitely look into that. Definitely, and if there are any movies uh, based on books that you have read or enjoyed please do send us your recommendations because actually it'd be really nice to have this discussion and to have you guys join in but anyway it does bring us to the end of this podcast so thank you very much for listening and we hope to join you next time to read the right way